All right, the following text. It follows our last sermon on Mark, which we did a couple of weeks ago, where we concluded on chapter 6. You'll recall, I hope, that Jesus had miraculously fed the 5,000, and then later that night he walked on water. At the very end of that chapter, Jesus and his disciples, they then landed their boat on the shores of a Gentile region along the shores of Lake Gennesaret, or the Sea of Galilee, as it's sometimes called. Many people began to bring their sick to him for healing. It was not unusual. No doubt this word got out, as it always did. In such activity, it drew the authorities to see what was going on. Sometimes Roman authorities to make sure that the Pax Romana, right, the peace of Rome was kept. But other times it was the religious authorities, as in the case here this morning. The interested authorities were the Pharisees, the teachers and the keepers of the Jewish synagogue and God's law. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning. Mark 7, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God. And hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left, the people and disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him from within. Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, 
sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Amen. Let's stop there. May the Lord bless to us this portion of his holy word. It's a long set of verses. I can tell you already, we're not going to get through all of them today. It may take another week or two. We'll see how that goes. But I'm going to start by telling you a brief story, which I suspect that some of you have already heard before. It drives home a point that our scripture passage teaches, and it's a favorite of preachers, particularly those from early, the early years of last century when times were lean due to the Depression and a couple of world wars. Well, the story goes like this, but I'm going to apply my own twist in case you've heard it before. Since it's a made-up story, I can do that with literary license, and I'm going to take it. So here it goes. Some, some years ago, there were three adult children whose families were getting together to celebrate the Lord's resurrection. Easter, two sons and a daughter, each having a spouse and some children. After Easter Sunday service, they all gathered at the home of the eldest, one of the two sons, for what would be a relaxing Sunday afternoon. The moms and dads, they hid some Easter eggs for the kids. The three men were then happy to turn on the final round of the Masters Tournament and settle into watching their favorite players struggle against the famed golf course at Augusta National. Meanwhile, the three women, they were happily busy in the kitchen preparing the meals. They were chatting up a storm while they finalized the various dishes and drinks. They were trying to time all the pieces, right? the casseroles, the potatoes, the ham, the bread, so they all come out at the same time. And I think that you all are aware and have experienced that can be tricky to time it all so that it's coming out warm and at the right time. When they eventually sat down together at the dinner table, a question arose from the women, which had been debated earlier in the kitchen. One of the sisters-in-law, who of course had not grown up in the family, she asked the daughter why she cut the ends off of the Easter ham before she baked it. Her response was not very convincing, which was to say that she didn't know why, except that that was the way that her parents had always done it. So at this table... The brothers then began to weigh in with their two cents. Over the years, they also had cut the ends off the hands because, like their sister, that's just the way their parents had done it. Nobody ever thought to ask why. One brother thought maybe this was to remove the driest parts of the ham, right, so that only the juiciest pieces would be served at the table. The other brother said, no, 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 that's not it. But instead, he suspected that maybe... The ends of the ham were were used to extend the ham, to make some ham salad. That way it would go further during those lean years. Of course, that's when the family ham tradition started. And so the discussion went around the table, but none of the siblings or their spouses were satisfied with their conclusions of that tradition, of exactly why the ends of the ham were cut off. They couldn't figure it out. But this they knew. Cutting off the ends of cooking before cooking it was the way it had always been done, and it was the right way. And that's the way it was going to continue to be. Well, they concluded, we need to call mom. We should simply call our mother. She'll know. But it wasn't that easy. 
Mom had always deferred to her now deceased husband, who said that it was his parents who had started that tradition. And so to get to the bottom of this mystery, then they then, they then called up Grandma and Grandpa, who, no surprise, were in assisted living by now. These children, their spouses, and their mom, they all wanted to know why the ends were always cut off the ham. Grandpa, he took up the phone. Grandpa took the phone and he explained that when he married Grandma during the 1930s, that they didn't have any money. And so they were helped by their parents with hand-me-downs, used household goods, a car that was beat up and had seen better days. And I lost my place. one of the items that they received from their parents was a roasting pan or a baking pan in which they would cook their Easter hams. Okay, okay, said one of the eldest, said one of the brothers, but why'd you cut the ends off of it? Was it because of some juicy recipe reason, perhaps, or or making the ham go further? Or even something really cool, like maybe representing both victory during the wars on each shore, right, the, the Pacific and in Europe? No, no, said Grandpa, nothing, nothing so dramatic. The truth is that the pan was pretty small, and the ham just wouldn't fit in it. We had to make it fit. And so a generational tradition was born. I heard some chuckles, but I'll admit I'm I'm a preacher. I'm not a stand-up comic. I'm not even a good storyteller at times. I practiced that. I did try. I'll give you that. But I hope you enjoyed it or at least can appreciate the point, which is that people often do things out of tradition without knowing why, without understanding the purpose. And so what may have begun for a very practical reason may not even be presently necessary, applicable, or even helpful. And also that traditions and behaviors, while maybe good ones, they should not be blindly followed. Okay, but to benefit from them, they, they need to be understood for what they are because traditions always play a supporting role. Right? They're never the main actor. They're always the supporting actor. And in the case of the scriptures, the role of tradition is to support the word of God. Never, ever does, excuse me, usurp it. Tradition must never replace the scriptures and it must never be treated as more authoritative. Scripture always must remain authoritatively supreme and alone when it comes to the teachings, commands, and practices of God. Now that truth, by the way, was the main pillar, pillar that drove the Reformation. Scripture alone has the sole and ultimate authority to bind a man's conscience regarding spiritual matters. Not a pope, not a church, not a tradition but scripture alone, right? The Latin term that the Reformation uses, sola scriptura, scripture alone. What we have before us this morning in Mark's chapter 7, it deals with man-made traditions that have over the course of time, these man-made traditions became a standard of practice in Jesus' day, the expected way of doing things. But as we're going to see in a moment, both today and next week, they were performed at the expense of what God commands, what he demands from his people. They didn't support the scriptures, but instead they were used to replace the scriptures. And Jesus didn't like that. 
And so like the family cutting off the ends of the ham for generations without knowing why, these Pharisees, they evolved what was originally a good practice. It was originally a good practice, or at least it was a good intention, that being to strive to honor God's commands. They wanted to be meticulous in getting these commands right. Just one example of this, by the way, in the Old Testament, required a tithe, right? That's, that's a tenth. Tithe means tenth. A tithe of all increase that his people experienced. And the Pharisees made sure that they adhered to the letter of that law. They gave, they applied it even to their tiniest of assets, which was their spices and their herbs, right? Their mint and their cumin. But Jesus says that while they were doing these very small things, and they were doing them well, and they shouldn't ignore the small things, by the way. They were ignoring the bigger things. They were ignoring the big picture, the forest, if you will, those requirements which were more weighty. And you know what those are. Love and justice and mercy. That's what God wants from us. That's Matthew 23, 23. It's easy to remember. 23, 23 in Matthew Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And so one of the problems that the Pharisees had, and it's a problem that they just permeated their office, they majored in minors. They majored in minors. They would have pulled you over for going 71 miles an hour out here on I-64 where the speed limit's 70, right? One mile an hour over. They would have pulled you over for that. And you wouldn't have just gotten a speeding ticket, but they may have thrown you in the clink into jail for a little while for breaking the law. Another problem with the Pharisees is that over time, they evolved these supporting practices into a position that they elevated their importance. They put them on par with or even made them greater than the scriptures themselves. God's requirements became secondary to these traditions. And so by the time Jesus came on the scene, These traditions, right, those practices which the Pharisees had added to the commandments of God, they incorrectly became the norm for demonstrating obedience to God. It's going to be a big problem. We're going to look at that more here. I say incorrectly because God never required them. They're man-made. They're added. Again, maybe with good intentions, but they became perverted to the point where they bypassed the law of God for their own sake. Going back to my I-64 example of getting a ticket for going one mile an hour over the speed limit, okay, that, that's the letter of the law. I don't really think it's the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law is to be safe. But to mitigate against the potential sin of going over 70... The Pharisees might add a restriction that you couldn't pass another car because that would potentially cause you to have transitory speeds that go over 70. So they're going to add to that speed limit. Can't pass another car. They might have placed a requirement on you to have a special license that allows you to drive in the 60s. And that will make sure if you don't have that license, you can't drive in the 60s. You've got to stay in the 50s or below. And so all of a sudden it becomes illegal for you to even drive in the 60s. Not not above 70, but the intention is let's let's make sure that nobody goes above 70. 
So all these kinds of extra rules, they were enacted and they were enforced by the Pharisees. And they, they made driving impractical, if you follow my example with that, and, and inefficient. So the cast of characters in our text this morning, it includes, again, the bad guys, the Pharisees, the leaders of the temple and the keepers of the law, and they just keep getting it wrong. And they dig themselves into a deeper hole by continuing time and time again to challenge Jesus. They try to find an airtight fault with him. But they're doing that because, frankly, he makes them uncomfortable. He challenges them. The rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, is a threat to their popularity. They're respectable experts. And he he challenges that because he shows them they really don't know what they're doing. They think they know the law, but they don't know the spirit of it. They can recite A, B, C, D, E, F, G, but they don't understand what that spells. And they hate him for it. You'll remember, I hope, that this isn't the first time that they challenged the Lord. In Mark chapter 2, they got all over the Lord for allowing his disciples to eat some heads of grain as they walked through some fields or beside the fields. They were picking the heads off the grain to eat this. But the problem, said the Pharisees, they're doing this on the Sabbath. Now, there was a Sabbath law that said you can't reap your fields on the Sabbath. That's work for profit. Can't do that. The Pharisees said, well, picking some heads off the grain, that's, that's like reaping a field. So for personal consumption even, we're not, we're not going to allow that. So they extended God's spirit of the law by adding minor commands to it. And by enforcing their burdensome extensions and traditions as on par with, with God's law, which was required, the Pharisees put the people in chains where God had allowed them to be free. To give you an idea of the absurdity of this, the Pharisees on the Sabbath would not allow the Jews to untie a knot. So if you got a knot in your shoelace, you couldn't untie it until after the Sabbath. That was considered work. If you tore your clothing... Guess how many stitches you could fix that clothing with? One stitch. If you put two in it, that's sin. One's not sin, but two is sin, according to the pharisaical tradition. By making such rules, of course, this generated a long list of to-dos, of do's and don'ts, which they could keep. It's easy to keep your own list of do's and don'ts. Certainly it's possible to keep them. But instead, they used that list to usurp the obeying of the rules that God had given, which they couldn't keep. And we know you can't keep God's demands. Let's start off with one of them, to love the, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. How are we doing since breakfast this morning on that one? Pharisees couldn't keep it. And that's a big problem for the legalist. For under legalism, if you can't keep the law, then you lose. You have no hope. So Jesus had been indicting the Pharisees, these so-called experts of the law, showing that they were failures. They couldn't do God's will. They couldn't keep God's commands. And that's why in chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees conspired with the Herodians to kill Jesus. They wanted to kill him. 
That's probably far too much introduction, and I realize now that I would do a disservice if I really tried to compress all 23 verses into this morning's service. But I want you to have a sense of what it would look like to live under that type of scrutiny, right under that type of legal tyranny. The, ver- uh, the Pharisees, they made it virtually impossible to appreciate the love of God, to experience the joy of God. We've read this morning the Westminster Shorter Catechisms, number one. What's the chief end of man? To enjoy him forever, right? How do you do that? You do that by obeying him. You obey him by enjoying him. They're tied together. They couldn't enjoy God's mercy either because the Pharisees had no provision for mercy. The law doesn't. The people's lives were filled with burdens of behavior that robbed them of that joy, and it masked the true relationship they were supposed to have with God who designed them to have this love and merciful, forgiving relationship with his children. And the Pharisees ruined it. So what's going on here in the first few verses of Mark 7? Some Pharisees, they observed Jesus' disciples eating food. Not all of them, some of them. Matthew's version in Matthew 15, I think, is helpful. It gives us more detail. It says that they were eating bread, but that they didn't wash their hands first before they ate. So why did the Pharisees find fault with that? Where in the Bible is that precluded? Where, where in the Bible does eating, or rather washing hands before eating bread, where is that prohibited? It's not. It's not there. But instead, these Pharisees, not because of hygiene or because of some scripture, because that wasn't in there, no scripture prevented it, but instead as a ritual cleansing. Okay, it was a ritual cleansing from defilement that they had prescribed. In other words, it was symbolic. It was a symbolic washing, which was not a biblical mandate. Now Mark, the author here of our gospel, Mark is kind enough to explain to the largely Gentile audience in Rome to which the book of, or the gospel of Mark was originally written to, that the traditional practice of the Jews was to wash their hands, which had been prescribed by Jewish leaders in former times. Now, before I unpack this tradition of the elders, which is kind of critical to the passage, we need to understand that phrase. I want us to note that the Pharisees didn't really care about the disciples. Right? They were not trying to indict the disciples. They weren't their target. Their hostility was aimed at Jesus. Why do your disciples behave in this manner? Okay, they don't go to the disciples and ask them quietly. They go to the leader and indict him. Why do your disciples behave in this manner? You'll remember, of course, that Jesus had been holding himself up as the authority. He declared himself to be the Messiah who has the authority to heal, and not just heal physically, but to heal spiritually, to cleanse a heart, right? to forgive sin. The Pharisees found this blasphemous, and they belittled, uh, they found it belittling to them because it somehow took them off their pedestal of importance. So what's the problem here? All right. There were 
there were God-ordained principles of ritual cleanliness that were set forth in the Old Testament. But they were few in number, and they were easy to obey. But the Pharisees, they became heavy-handed with this. This is just one example here, right? The law, as you know, required the priests of Israel to wash their hands before they entered the holy place. Maybe you didn't know that, but I don't know. I'll just say it. So they had to wash their hands before they went in to offer sacrifices in the holy place. But there was no law in existence that required that or imposed that upon the ordinary person. They didn't need to be ritually cleansed before they ate bread. But the Pharisees essentially then said, well, if it's good for the priest... It's probably good for the people, too. So we're going to impose that on the people. We'll make them do it also. And if the the people have to lift a 20-pound weight, then just to be safe, we're going to make them lift 25. Going to go the extra mile. So what happened over many years is that the rabbis who interpreted the law, God's Old Testament, they added to it clarifications. They added to it interpretations. They added to it extra requirements, thereby making this list of do's and don'ts far greater and hard to understand even, to remember, than the regulations that God imposed. And these became orally passed down from rabbi to rabbi, from generation to generation, and that eventually became known as the tradition of the elders. Eventually, by the way, They wrote them down. It became too numerous. Third century A.D., they wrote them down in a a volume, if you will. It's a Jewish name called the Mishnah. They wrote them down in the Mishnah. And they did that because they were devoted to ritual cleansing and to purity. Because guess what? They believed, the Pharisees believed that salvation came from ethnic separation. They believed that they were saved by keeping themselves clean from the contamination from unbelievers and from sinners, which is why they piled on all of these rituals. That was these rituals, right, this oral tradition that Jesus was referring to in his Sermon on the Mount. When he spoke, you've heard it said, dot, 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 fill in the blank. But I tell you, dot, 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 fill in the blank, such as you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. That's Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. The term often used in scriptures to validate that it is from scripture is thus it is written or it is written. It means that the Bible says it. Sometimes the Bible will use another phrase. Moses said or a prophet said. That means that God says it. It's a command. It's a truth. You can rely on it. It's God speaking. It's authoritative. But that stands in stark contrast to this oral tradition. And it's this oral tradition that Jesus frequently violated. Because not only were those traditions not required by God, and not only were they not often unhelpful towards obedience, 
but they actually sometimes literally perverted, right? They changed the law of God. They changed God's will from being carried out, prevented it. Traditions thwarted God's will by sidestepping it. We're going to look at that next week or the week after at this thing called Corbin. It's an example of this sidestepping. And that's where we're going to pick up next week, Lord willing, with verse 6, which teaches about legalism and the hypocrisy of men. What's contained, by the way, in these first 23 verses of chapter 7, they're quite critical to understand how we think as a Christian and as a church, both globally, right, the church of Jesus, that Catholic church, that universal church, but also as a local church, Edgemont Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. It's this oral tradition that Jesus frequently violated because not only were those traditions not required of God, but as I said, they actually thwarted it. Our focus, both as a Christian and his church, is that we should never lose sight of the word of God. It's purpose. Our gaze should always be focused on that, right? Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. That's the only authority we have, the only authority we need to look to to convict us as individuals regarding spiritual matters. Again, not me, not the church, not a pope, not a person, not a tradition. We're supposed to glorify God with this gaze, right? We're supposed to hallow his name, Lord's Prayer. To live by him and for him in the name, I'm sorry, to live by him and for him in the freedom from guilt's, from sin's guilt that Jesus has wrought for us by his active obedience to the Father and by his submissive death on the cross. That freedom, of course, it doesn't mean that we don't have any rules. The Bible has rules. Just look at the Ten Commandments. That's the moral code, the moral law of God that still applies. It's it reveals his nature, his character. That doesn't change. We still have speed limits and lane markers and guardrails. Just to be clear, Jesus isn't saying that laws of compliance are to be abandoned. That's not what he's saying. But God has called us to operate our life in Christ by the supreme law that summarizes all of them, which is to love God. And not when we feel like it, not when it's convenient, not when it's easy, but always with every ounce of our being and without compromise. Not like the Pharisees who simply wanted to check a box of compliance, but because you love the lawgiver, right? You love the law. That's what the psalmist declared. It's your law I love. I meditated on it day and night. It's like life to me. We do that because we want to please him. I look forward to next week when we pick up this text. Let's pray now. Our great and awesome God, the cross is empty. And so our lives in Christ are secured forever. Keep watch over us, we pray, ensuring that we live rightly, humbly, and thankfully, Lord, doing all that we do according to your will for us, not, not encapsulated by a list of do's and don'ts. Those will suffocate us. 
but by our hearts, which are owned, renovated, and operated by your Holy Spirit. For Christ's sake. Amen.